0: Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Rita Strack, editor at Nature Methods. And we talk about her graduate work on fluorescent proteins.
1: So my goal, the goal of my graduate work was basically to optimize the surface of DS Red to make it so you could just express tons of it. Really get yourselves glowing without killing them. We
0: discover how much abuse journal editors can face.
1: Yeah, I mean I would say the three big hitter I mean it's it's rare. It's it's exceptionally rare. I don't want I don't want it to sound like this happens every day. It does not. But I think age, race and gender are three factors that influence some of the personal criticisms we get.
0: And find out about her passion for Korean food.
1: Um, One of my favourite foods is called Dokboki and and we're having it this Sunday.
0: What actually motivates Rita and her passion for publishing?
1: So I guess that's my motivation. I want to make the journal great. Um, Personally, I love this idea of making the process more transparent.
0: And Hira tell us her favourite science joke.
1: I don't know about my delivery. My stand-up comedy is very rusty.
0: (laughs) All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi. Uh, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today on the Microscopist, I'm joined by Rita Strack, one of the editors for Nature Methods, with a specialism in microscopy, but goes far beyond that. Uh, I think I, I, UK-US time zones are different, so I won't say good morning, good afternoon. I'll just say hi. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Rita. Do you know, we've never met, uh, so it's gonna be really I, so I, I followed you on Twitter and see what your comments yeah. are so man, I see what sort of inputs you put out into the community. I've got so many questions that I'd like <laughs> to know. And just to get to know you, to get to know you a bit better, and I'm quite sure there's a lot of other people as well that similarly follow your, your Twitter feeds and your comments because uh, they're always very instructive and, and informative. Uh, and some personal ones, which I think is really nice actually to see that on Twitter feeds. So I think this will be good for a lot of people to catch up with. So Okay, so I guess I know you from your editor role at Nature Methods and um, the pivotal role, <laughs> but I think what unless people go and research your background, they probably don't appreciate your your scientific background to start with. So where did, where did your interest in science start?
1: Wow, well, that's a great question. I think he, it started from a very young age. My dad, um, he was in the air force and he worked on airplanes so he always had an interest in tinkering and engineering and after he retired from the air force he his second career was a math teacher and i think um he always loved math and science and i think he brought that home with him so my brother and i were also very inspired along those lines my brother is um, a chemical engineer and um so i think it started at young and at home i've always been kind of curious and i'd say maybe observant is one of my personality traits so I think that led me really well into experimental science and then I was very lucky in high school I just had some fantastic biology and chemistry teachers and they just really opened the door to this sort of exploration and discovery and learning and so from there that's when my interest really soared and I you know I pursued biology and biochemistry in college and biochemistry for my PhD. So I'd say it started at home, but it was definitely reinforced at all aspects of my training and education.
0: I, I've got a really, I've not asked this of anyone actually. So, so I, I did biochemistry similarly. I know you did biology and biochemistry at your, your undergraduate at, at applied. Did you know actually what biochemistry really entailed when you started out?
1: Um, no, I, actually that's a good question. And I think I didn't really learn it until my first biochemistry class. What you would call biochemistry 101 and on the first day of class i remember my professor saying like today we're going to talk about biochemistry and what it is and we're going to spend the whole day talking about water and he said it's not a biomolecule but it's so fundamental to life and i i just that really stuck with me and how um how biology happens in aqueous solution and how all of these things interact and what biochemistry is how it's different from chemistry how it's different from from biology And again, I think good teachers make all the difference in that. But, you know, I think at the same time, some of these definitions are very squishy. You know, I think there are definitely biochemists who, um, you know, there are all sorts of different niches, niches even within biochemistry. So I think um, it's it's nice actually that it's kind of a vague term. I think when I think of biochemistry, I definitely get the definition I got from grad school, which is sort of, um, really protein-centric, RNA-centric, really structure-centric, structure-focused. But no, I think it took me a long time to really figure out what it is, and I think the definition can can still change.
0: I, I love the fact that loads of people listening now, I think they've heard of biochemistry thinking, even the biochemistry, so exactly what is biochemistry? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not just biology and chemistry, it is that interactions of molecules as well. So you know, I've got to throw lipids in there. I have to throw lipids in there. Oh, of
1: course, I'm... of
0: course. <laughs> so that's my biochemistry, uh, protein-lipid interactions for it. So obviously you, you enjoy, enjoyed your biology and you obviously had good teachers, especially if you look at that first day of Biochemistry 101 and how that really got you mm-hmm. thinking around aqueous solutions. So you actually, I presume you then carried on more in the biochemistry field. and yeah. I so think they go very so
1: Yeah, it, in college I did um I used my summers which in the United States we have summers off. Um I used my summers to do different research experiences and I did one um sort of in molecular genetics, one in genetics of mouse genetics and then one in biochemistry and um biochemistry when I worked for Jim Hu who unfortunately passed away last year um at Texas A&M and things just really clicked. I loved Protein, thinking about protein-protein interactions, really how things were functioning at a molecular scale. And so that's what really drove me towards biochemistry PhD. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it was very clear I made the right decision when I joined a protein engineering lab and I did crystallography and all of these things sort of clicked.
0: And what a what a field and what, what a lab to go into actually. at <laughs> University of Chicago? Yes. I think. and and. So your PhD was then looking at fluorescent proteins at a very good time, working <laughs> with and looking at fluorescent proteins. Uh, so, but that, but there's a lot of genetics now coming into this and designing it. So how did you find? Me, I find genetics really difficult. That that's one. <laughs> of my, that's my weakest part uh, when it comes to biology and biochemistry. So how did you find moving into the genetic side? That's
1: a great question. I think. Um, I guess I'll make a distinction again. We're talking about definitions of fields. I think genetics is all, genetics and genomics are also kind of my weak points, but I would say molecular genetics, things like cloning, things like mutagenesis that I had to do um, throughout my training for Celex and directed evolution. That, for me, that all kind of falls into molecular genetics and that sort of wet work. I always found very interesting. You know, it's very simple statistics. Like, how many mutations are you going to get per 1,000 base pairs? What are the likelihood of certain types of mutations, transitions, um, and what's that going to give you in terms of a readout in terms of your library size, and what you're going to get. So I think that sort of thing came very natural to me. But when it comes to like, genetics, like hard genetics, GWAS and things like that, that's definitely not in my training. Um, So I, I guess, so I was comfortable with the things I had to do. And whatever I wasn't comfortable with, I just, I just learned, you know, as one does when you're getting your PhD but um, i'd say the things that came more naturally to me were certainly the fluorescence things the microscopy um and also you know the biochemistry wet work crystallography things like that
0: so i have to ask what was the first mic can you remember the first time you used a microscope
1: oh yeah absolutely we had this workhorse microscope in ben Ben so i worked with ben glick and bob keenan um ben glick and Bob Keenan collaborate on the Fluorescent Proteins Project. Bob is a crystallographer, structural biologist who does directed evolution, and Ben studies secretion, but has developed all these fantastic fluorescent protein tools. And Ben had a, this workhorse, just wide field fluorescence microscope in the lab. And I just, I mean, I spent hundreds upon hundreds of hours working with that. And it's funny because now for my job, I spend so much time thinking about the very cutting edge of microscopy. But I know for a fact that so much can be accomplished, so much good science can be and is done on these wide-field microscopes that are just in, in a closet in the lab, or the confocal microscope that just is situated in your lab, how much good science is done on these sort of um, just standard nice microscopes. And so I, I definitely have many fond memories of um, all the time on just that very, I don't want to say basic, because it takes excellent data. Um, but that sort of typical microscope, you know, and I remember that very fondly, but of course I remember going to core facilities. I remember the first time I did stead. I remember the first time I did storm and these sorts of things. The first time I played on a turf, um, I think they all kind of stand out to me. What's yeah. interesting about my role is that, oh, sorry, I'll just go on one more yeah. second. <laughs> it's just, you okay. know, I have, I spent tons of time in my training on a microscope, but you know, I never built one. The closest I came was helping the lab order a custom microscope and thinking about all of the elements that we would need to use into it. And that's something that I think is fun about being an editor. You really challenge yourself in terms of learning and growing. Because sure, I, I spent tons of time on a microscope. I've taken fantastic images, acquired all this data, but I've learned now really what goes on inside of them. You know, and it's it, it took me learning a new vocabulary. It took me learning all sorts of new things about. And it's a new way of thinking about how light is traveling through a system. And, you know, when I came at it from the the tool development side, from the fluorescent protein development side, um, some of these things I had spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, like um, how a spectrophotometer works, absolutely. Um, But other things, not so much. And so part of this job that's been really fun for me is learning about microscopy. And,
0: And I think it's important, you mentioned you never built a microscope and actually, I think that's really important. I'm listening to, uh, talking to Eric Betzig. It's really important. There's people who can make microscopes and invent microscopes, but it's critical that they become turnkey. So people don't have to make microscopes, but can then apply them in ways uh, you know, that the inventors never dreamt of using them to move them forward. And the fluorescence microscope that you first used, and uh, we talking about, they would never have dreamt about fluorescent proteins and the exploitation of those is which, which is what you went on to do uh, during your PhD and postdoctoral days, making all sorts of derivatives of red fluorescent proteins or fluorescent proteins in general. And why on earth did you call one spinach?
1: Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. So that um, that was in Sami's lab. So Sami Dhabri, um, developed the spinach aptamer um, with Jeremy Page and, and a few other people in his lab, and I think. I know that he was inspired by Roger Chen's work on the fruits, and so he wanted to develop a similar family of RNA mimics of GFP that colored that spanned the visible region like the fruits do. But he didn't want to necessarily step on their toes. So, so it's definitely an homage to the fruits that they started with the vegetable series, which is now spinach, broccoli, pepper, corn. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely a tribute to them.
0: So, so nothing to do with Popeye then, with nothing to do, nothing
1: to do with Popeye, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> that would have been a great one. We could have loads of cartoon characters of fluorescent proteins as well, which would have been quite funny. I'm just noting behind <laughs> you, you're planting the window, uh, which looks like crystals, and one of the images you is actually not so dissimilar to the image that you sent me here, which actually, okay, I know they're crystals that I can see, beautifully iridescent, different colours. What what are they of and what were you looking
1: sure. at? Here? Yeah, so this is a picture I took in um, grad school, just on a stereo microscope um, of protein crystals of the red fluorescent protein E2 crimson. So this is one of the fluorescent proteins I engineered. So just to step back very quickly when I was a grad student, um, red fluorescent proteins were just beginning to get popular. That's how old I am, my goodness. Um, but but they there were good tools M cherry was available mCherry cherry was was widely used at this point um, but there wasn't there was a problem that people were experiencing when they tried to overexpress some red fluorescent proteins in their cells which it was just that they were killing the cells so instead of having this inert l- l- label you were influencing your experiment by expressing red fluorescent protein so my goal the goal of my graduate work was basically to optimize the surface of ds red to make it so you could just express tons of it, really get your cells glowing without killing them. And, um, so in doing that, I made this protein DS Red Express 2, which we showed in a number of systems, including stem cells, um, was very safe, very non-toxic, very inert, and could be expressed for a very long time, um, without killing your cells. So that was great. Actually, that was my first nature methods paper was that that protein DS Red Express 2. So then after that, we I got to play around with chromophore chemistry a little bit and what's going on in the middle, instead of focusing on the surface of the protein, I got to focus on what's going on near the chromophore. And so I made some color variants and one of them is E2 crimson. And I think this of the proteins I made, it might be the most popular and enduring because um, it matures really rapidly, which means from the time the protein folds, it becomes fluorescent very quickly. And um, it just, for. It turns out it behaves well in people's hands, so a lot of people have used it. I saw recently that um, Paul Beard's lab has developed it into um, a photoacoustic probe. Um, I, I know someone else, I know other people are making derivatives, so I don't know. I think it's really exciting that that protein sort of had a life of its own. And but part of my work was solving the structure of it, um, which those crystals diffracted to around 2.8 angstroms, if you're curious.
0: <laughs> <Not background. laughs> uh, so Actually, I, I, you, you said that's how long you've been in science, which certainly probably is not as long as I've been in science, that's for sure. Uh, but it's interesting that that field still hasn't stopped. And it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, the world of fluorescent proteins is now whew, 25, 30 years old, I, I've got, I think yeah. at least, and still developing, still emerging. It just shows how long some science can be and how things can still be improved day to day and the importance of that. It enables us to apply those new microscopies in ways that wouldn't have been possible before. But for whatever purpose. So after this, you, you switch careers. Uh, yeah. So that that's a big decision to go out of uh, out of the, out of the world of being in the lab doing research into editing, which which arguably still in the in the the realm of research, I guess. Uh, why the switch? It's a big switch.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and um, I think if it was um, it was sort of a multi pronged decision. So, you know, I say so. I when I was during my training, I was absolutely on an academic track. When I was on the job market, I applied for academic jobs. Um, I got interviews. I was very I was set up to succeed on that path. Let's say. Um. And I was excited about it. I had great, I had what I thought was an excellent packet, good ideas that like I had a, I had a two-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan um, to sort of build this good research family and keep it alive, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Great. Um,
0: great publication. So your record was certainly going very well. Yeah,
1: thank, yeah, thank you. I think there was nothing on my um, CV that hinted that I might not succeed. And I had every reason to think that I would, but then, you know I think as you grow through your PhD and through your postdoc you you start to think about what life is what you want to do with your life what's important to you like I think many people have this these sorts of thoughts and you know this sort of period of looking inward and you know one thing I think that sort of distinguished me from some of my colleagues um, especially in Sami's lab Sami's lab is filled with very bright, ambitious people. It was a fantastic place to do a postdoc, Um, was that, you know, I could see myself being happy in in other careers, like, outside of the academic track. And I think when I came to that realization, it was very stunning for me. It sort of stopped me dead. Like, my whole life, I've been pretty much dedicated to one trajectory, but I could be happy doing something else. And when I had that sort of um, moment of realization, it was very freeing. And, it, and it, it allowed me to sort of cast a wider net in terms of things I might be interested in doing, things that I might find fulfilling. Um, and I realized that a lot of jobs could meet the requirements that I really wanted in terms of what I need from a career. I wanted to stay in science. I love science. It wasn't a situation where I was just sick of it and I wanted out. You know, some people go to alternative careers for that reason. So I wasn't burned out. I didn't hate science. So I wanted to stay in science. I wanted to stay at the cutting edge. And actually I hadn't really strongly considered an editorial career. I never did any training specifically to put me on this path. Um, But when I was searching for jobs and I did look in industry, I looked in academia, I looked at things like consulting, I was casting sort of a wide net, I just saw an ad for a uh, uh, editor at nature methods. And it felt like it was written for me. They wanted someone with experience in fluorescence microscopy and probes. And the reason was they were replacing Dana Banco, who was um, sort of a beloved chief editor of Nature Methods for about five years. Um, ending around six years ago when I joined the, co- the company. And, um, you know, Dan knows everyone in microscopy. I think mean, people who are listening at home be like, oh Dan, how's Dan doing? I love Dan. How's Dan? Um, he's great. Uh, <laughs> I also love Dan, such a huge fan of his work. And um, so he, when he left the journal to go to go to a higher up position within the company, um, there was a spot open for the areas he covered. And it just, the ad felt like it was written for me. And so I just applied um, almost on a whim and I got an interview right away. And I went on the interview and things just clicked. I met the people, I learned about the job. This is not a good this is not a good advice. You should know about the job before you do the interview, but I really learned like on the day. Um, I think what helped me though is I know the journal very well. I'm such a I've been a fan of nature methods for years. Um I really know what they publish, what they're interested in. Um, I really had a good sense of their trends. Um, so I think those sorts of things helped me. But I would and so so in addition to those things, I'm gonna say a few things maybe sound a little bit more critical. Um, I did not have many role models in my life of women on the tenure track with young kids that were loving it, that were thriving, that um, um, that were just really happy and successful. In fact, when I was at the University of Chicago, um, I think there were only two female biochemistry faculty, both of them no kids, I think both of them unmarried. Um, and. And I saw the opposite examples. I remember, so Bob Keenan, my one of my co advisor he was um, junior. And I remember I could text him at like 4 a.m. and I would get a text back. He was, you know, he was just always available, always working. Um, and I remember one day, Sean Crossan was in the lab at like 11 p.m. He's another junior faculty at that time at the University of Chicago, and I was just like, he has kids, what's he doing here? It made it made sense that me as a grad student was there, but like, what's he doing there? And so I think. I took a lot of these sorts of experiences with me when I thought about what I wanted to do. And so then this is layered on top of the fact that I was on maternity leave for most of my uh, my job hunt. And when I had my son um, six years ago, there was just this sea change in how I felt about my priorities and what my career and my academic career success was versus my my success as a parent. Um, I think that change didn't even happen until the moment he emerged from my body. Like, it was like, oh, my God, there's a person here and I have to be his mom for like a long time. And how does that change what I what I want for my life? So I think all of these things kind of together, um, like right place, right time. I wanted to stay in New York. My husband has a great job here. So all of these things together sort of yeah. led me to this career. And I'm so sorry for that long winded answer. No, no, no,
0: actually, it's made <laughs> a lot of other questions, actually uh and if you just concentrate on that work-life balance so you've made a lot of work-life balance choice which probably is far more uh full-on than maybe you probably thought it would be because you're very passionate about it anyway and you fill it up because you're passionate about it but do you think academia is now in a better place to support or do you see more role models now coming through to show that actually people you know Ladies, women wanting to have children or families can have a successful career in academia. Uh, Do you see that more now?
1: Yeah, I think the trends are moving in the right direction. I mean, so, so I don't want to conflate too many things. I think COVID has been bad for women and it has been disastrous for women with children so i don't want to i don't want to underplay that i think as editors as people in positions to fund grants to get, make tenure decisions we need to be thinking about this front of mind to advance the careers of women so i w- i want to say that that being said um, i sort of wish i had been on twitter when i was in when i was a postdoc because i don't know if it's if it's just an observation effect like i'm seeing these these women succeeding killing it thriving um you know and managing many young kids you know multiple young kids under 10 and getting tenure and winning big grants and publishing um fantastic papers i see that so i see many positive role models on twitter that i never saw in my day-to-day life so but i don't know if it's because of timing of things improving or just because i'm I've, i've opened the window and the door to all of these observations but i hope it's getting better for women. i think Things are, people are appreciating things more and more like tenure clock extensions, um, the need for childcare, you know, the need for childcare built into the infrastructure of teaching, you know, Janelia has childcare in house. when I heard that, I thought, like, oh my God, everyone should do this. You know, not everyone has the money to be Janelia. I don't want to go there, but you know, it's like if everybody supported women like that, I think this sort of leaky pipeline would just, um, Get smaller.
0: Genelia would be good. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is kind of a. It is just like it is their the place. It is awesome uh, as a place in itself. So, do you miss the the open bench side? Do you miss being in a lab? Um,
1: I'd say I miss I miss the microscope. I'd say I don't miss all the failure. You know, coming in and checking your plates and having no colonies you know, waiting four hours for a PCR, running your gel, having no band and like, you know, and those little things kind of those little sort of what you might call like a styrofoam wall that you run into on the day-to-day basis of a bench, a bench work. I don't miss that at all. We have no similar failure as an editor and that's kind of nice. Um, but I do miss, I literally miss the microscope, that moment of observation where you're seeing something that no one has seen before you know, just scanning your cells, saying, what do you look like? like can I see something that was invisible? I, I mean, I miss that. I, I found it peaceful. I found it, I don't know, just, just seeing, seeing the biology. I always found that stunning. And I do miss that.
0: Uh, no, I, I totally get that. Uh, the amount of time I spend at a microscope now is very minimal, uh, but I do get sent the results as they get come off when they're exciting. So I actually get to see the really, I get to see the problems when they're really <laughs> <laughs> intractable problems I get roped in. But then the other side is when something completely, utterly new is seen. Uh, even with new technologies and you get to see it first and it just, every now and then you're just, bl- I take a lot to be impressed in the world <laughs> of science. And every now and then you see something you just think, wow. Or, or you see the, the, the face, the excitement in the person showing it to you. So it's just like, that's what it's enabled. You know, it's a, but they can see their biology, their biochemistry really happening. They know that all their theories is true. It's right. It's there. They can see it. And it's true. Seeing is believing. Uh, you just have to be careful what you're seeing is real, I guess. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned your, your children. So here's your family here. Yeah. So, so six years for your son. Um,
1: Yes. Your daughter? So, Maisie, Maisie, my daughter, is three. So, there's a bit of an age gap, but they're old enough now that they can actually play well together, which is great because the pandemic has basically made them I mean, it's just forced the situation, right? They've sort of had to become playmates. Um, So, it's been great. That picture is um, from Chuseok, which is a Korean sort of Korean Thanksgiving holiday. I'm half Korean. Many people can't tell which. You know, when you're half something, it can be difficult to tell, but I'm half Korean. And so on my mom's side, so we definitely celebrate all of those traditions. And we try to keep my children involved. Um, my children are learning a few Korean words and um, they like listening to K-pop, which has been okay. sort of <laughs> we have some K-pop dance parties.
0: <laughs> yep. well, I, I can do obviously some big acts in K-pop now, but Gangnam Style probably wasn't the greatest introduction for it.
1: No, but the dance when your kids do the the gunner style dance, I mean, it's priceless, right?
0: (laughs) And you know what? I hate to say this, but actually, the beat in it, just the the beat in the background, is really good workout music. I'm (laughs) embarrassed to say that, but it is actually really good. Yeah,
1: absolutely. There's
0: no shame in that. It'd be a guilty pleasure. And this is again, it's a lovely picture of them, (laughs) and with a it's quite high bunny rabbit.
1: Yes. So um, I think like many people, we bought um, pandemic animals <laughs> to sort of um, help us through what what is a really crazy time.
0: That sounds really wrong. It sounds like the, the, the pet's got a pandemic.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> All right. For people watching this in the future, when COVID is gone, I think a lot of, like, you know, a lot of people have been adopting dogs and cats as companions be- to, because we're lonely. And um, we didn't want to Um, go the cat or dog route quite yet, but we got two bunnies. I think you're seeing Peanut in that picture. Um, And the kids just love them. The bunnies are sweet. They don't like to be picked up, but they do like to be petted. They love attention. And I think the kids, um, once they have overcame their initial excitement, they did stop trying to scream at the bunnies, terrify the bunnies. (laughs) You know, in their excitement, they were just like, bunnies! but now they've, they've settled in and we're a family.
0: (laughs) Are these house rabbits?
1: Um, yes and no. So we have some, they live in the house. Yes. And we have some areas that are bunny proof, but we learned the hard way that you cannot just let them free range because they chewed through the wires, um, on one of my speakers, they chewed through a cat five cable that was (laughs) like hardwiring my internet. So, um, yeah, so we have some bunnies, we have some specific places in the house that are bunny proof, and, and they do live in our living room.
0: At least they didn't go through the electrical cables, because... Uh, yes, exactly. That would that National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation with a cat under the tree. It's all my... that really... <laughs> biting through a cable. Uh, so so how, who's done the uh, homeschooling?
1: That's a great question, and I'm going to make people jealous here. I'm very lucky um that my parents live nearby they retired young like i said my dad's a retired school teacher and they watch our kids during the day they provide full-time childcare and my dad manages my daughter's too young for school but my dad manages all of my son's remote schooling literally all of it in fact we just had a parent teacher conference with a teacher the other day and there were some things i just didn't know he was even doing because my dad has been managing all of it and um, that's been such a, I mean, that's been so instrumental to my, my husband and myself being able to continue to work and thrive and have some sort of normalcy in this time is that the kids are out of the house from nine to five, <laughs> you know? Um, so I'm very lucky in that regard. So my dad, he's, he's, he's taken on this burden, like a champion.
0: <laughs> so I bet he's loved it though, because that time, and you know what? They will remember it. Certainly the six year old will remember these times, uh. Actually, it would be lovely to have that time to spend with my own children. Uh, I don't. I'm very lucky. My wife is only p- works part time and does a lot, And my children are a bit older, so they don't need as much support, but they still need that home tutoring. And I'm very fortunate uh, myself in that respect. But I bet he's loving it.
1: You know, he told me that he doesn't want to go back to normal school. He wants Grampy to be his teacher forever. So I think he, I think he does. He does like it. And you know, um, my, th- his teacher even said that she thinks he he's one of the few students who's really thriving in homeschool. Like he would not be doing any better in person. And I think um, that's also been my impression except for the social interaction. You know, he's not learning how no. to be the peer of another six year old. And that that makes me nervous. We have a very tiny bubble. We only have one friend that we trust enough to let have play dates with their kids. And I think that part has been hard.
0: No, I, I can. Yeah, as a child, they 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 need that side to it. So coming coming back to the day job itself, uh, which I presume you really enjoy.
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: Okay, so I, I was wondering actually. I can see how you can love it, uh, seeing what's coming through, but at the same time, it must be quite a stressful, difficult job, because you know I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a manuscript and you're gonna say. <laughs> That's not for nature methods. And that must be quite tough to then, you know, I, I guess you do it a lot and maybe you become hardened to it, but it can't be an easy task to send a, 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 a I'm sorry, we're not interested. How, what's going through your mind? How, how does that make you feel? What are you thinking when you get yeah, to send it off? You know, you're making someone's day when it goes to reviewers that, you know, that's like, yes, at least I've got past stage one. But when you don't get to stage one, you know, I know what it feels like, uh for good reason. I I when you reflect back, you think, yeah, that was that was too chancy, you know, but you go a chance of luck. But some people it's they're passionate, they don't understand why. So
1: how do you cope with that? Um, those are great questions. You know, I would say that rejecting papers, at least for me, is the very hardest, worst part about being an editor, no doubt. Um, and I think the way I cope So the first thing is I think that's good. I think it keeps me very careful. You know I'm not flippant about any paper. We read every paper carefully, we discuss them, we give them their due consideration, um, and we take it very seriously because there are expectations riding on every single submission. They're real people, real students, real scientists who put a lot of work and energy and effort into creating these nice papers and then we're making a decision on them. Um, so I take that very seriously, and um, and it's hard. I, I I won't lie about that. i'm I'm a people pleasing person. That's my that's my intrinsic nature. So disappointing people, it's never gotten easy. I've never hardened to it. six years in, still still difficult. I will say there are things that help. And I think the biggest thing is this. It's just that, you know, people see editors as gatekeepers, but I'm only making a decision. Or we're only making a decision about whether the paper should be published with us. There are thousands of journals. I don't know of any paper I've rejected that hasn't been published. I'm not saying your paper should not be published. In fact, typically that's the furthest thing from my mind. It's only in exceptionally rare cases where we get a paper that we're like, this makes no sense. I mean, maybe one per year where we're like, this makes no sense. Typically it's just like, this is a nice paper. It's just not for us. And so I think that sort of helps me because I'm not rejecting the paper forever. I'm not like throwing it into a trap, into a dumpster and lighting it on fire. I'm just saying, you know, not, not, not for us, not not this paper. So that that sort of helps a, a little bit. I think the other thing that helps is just, it feels so good to f- see a paper through to accept. I think that how good that feels sort of outweighs the bad of the rejection and I think oh, the final thing I just wanna say on this is that I want every author of every author whose paper I've rejected to feel like I read and understood their paper. That is what you are owed by me. You are not owed review. You are owed the knowledge that I read your paper carefully, I understood it, and then I made a judgment call about whether it was right or not for nature methods. And I think um, the part of a, a big job Big part of our job is building trust in our community. I know a lot of microscopists now. I know that they know that I take their papers seriously, that I understand their work. Um, and so I think that's that's helped me um, just build trust in my community. People say, okay, read it, Rita's gonna handle this paper. I want Rita, I want Rita to read this paper, Rita will understand this. So I think that's the work I've done and that that helps. And I'd say to any author who doesn't feel that way, who doesn't feel convinced that I understood their work. Um, to talk to me about it. That's my job too. We can have a conversation even about rejected papers.
0: And I bet you get quite a lot of that as well. Say, God, they just haven't understood it. They, they haven't got it. They haven't grasped, you know, what they perceive as the the ultimate. <laughs> because, you know, everyone thinks their work is excellent. <laughs> you know, certainly in the early days, everything is outstanding. <clears throat> Some people never really get that balance of, so where is this actually? You know, it's a good bit of work wow, this is groundbreaking. This is you know, gonna be impact in wider than just my niche area. But you must get some very, I would imagine, I don't know, but I'd imagine some people come back with fire, uh, really fighting and, and, and not, not accepting of a rebuttal and not just maybe that first rebuttal, but even when you get the reviewer's comments that then say, no, no, no. And I said, this must be a competitor that's saying this, this is completely outrageous. <laughs> How how do you cope with that? Because obviously there's them it's really angst. You can feel the the anger in it, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. You're absolutely right. So we get all sorts of what we call appeals, which is basically where people are just asking us to reconsider the decision we made. And, and the good news is this is part of our training to deal with these people, to not, you know, to deal with these concerns. And so the way we deal with them is professionally. You know, this is our job to handle all types of personalities, all types of things that come our way, in a way that is timely, professional, and fair. I think um, we really care about fairness and, and the perception of fairness at the journal. Um, so I think it can be hard when people attack you personally. But it's rare. So I'd say the real the bad players are quite are quite rare. So it's it's not something that really discourages me from doing the job. You just kind of have to roll with it. I think there are times when it borders on bullying and we don't tolerate things like racism, which we have experienced at the journal. You know, if we get racist insults, we deal with those a you know certain way. Um, but if it's just kind of like,
0: Hmm? I, I never even dreamt that you get that there'd be racist abuse coming i can i i, I have a question how do you i I, cause I can imagine you get abuse back uh i've had collaborators who who have posted me rebuttals to uh i, I said look you've got collaborators on papers and they said this is out and they're, and they're, i couldn't submit their rebuttal uh, because it's just outrageous and I, there's no yeah. way it's, that's unprofessional hmm. you know there's a person the other side that is neutral to this you know that they, they are they're not to blame for it but you must get that abuse but I'm amazed that people start going on I guess gender race whatever else I just really
1: yeah I mean I would say the three big hitters I mean it's its rare its it's exceptionally rare I don't want I don't want it to sound like this happens every day it does not but I think age race and gender are three factors that influence some of the personal criticisms we get you know a lot of editors are women a lot of editors are you know junior editors they're junior they they're coming straight from their postdoc usually and you know i think um that brings with it a certain amount of they're just they can be a bit of an unknown and that can be perceived as a point of weakness um it, it's very rare i don't want to you know most scientists are very professional very kind and you know i don't think it benefits anyone to be mean to editors really but there there are there are personalities that border on bullying, and we just have to um, deal with them as professionally as we can. And you know, we don't let people bully us to change our editorial criteria, but we don't also we don't sink to their level. We don't say, you know, um, we just have to, you know, we're we're the bigger players in in that regard. I'd say if we have review comments rev, like rebuttals that bully our reviewers, we will step in. We'll say this is inappropriate. You need to revise your rebuttal. Same thing for our, our reviews. If our reviews are just cutting nasty yeah. um you know we'll step in you know we're not going to send that if our reviews appear racist i mean like if any of these things we're going to step in we're going to um, use our editorial criteria our experience to make the best decision to be fair to be to be good
0: no i've never had a review kick as in if i review something i've never had that kickback which is good but i am <laughs> pretty honest actually my i, I think i as a reviewer, both grants and publications, I'm very honest in it, and I think, oh, should I be saying this directly, because it's quite cutting, you know, it's quite, yeah, it's not insulting, it's it's just how I'm seeing it, and then I think actually if I was to meet the person, would I say it to their face, and I think I'd have to, and so I always, actually I, I, I've i all been in favour for, I'm quite happy for people to know if I'd reviewed their paper, or their manuscript, because I should stand by my interpretation of it, and uh, which is nice when you get rebuttals, because they can answer back, I guess, at that point. Uh, but it's always that moment of sanity. would I say it to their face if they found out it was me? The answer is always yes. It's, it's always a bit terrifying. <laughs> but for good reason, I think. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saying it. Uh, so over your whole career so far, what has been the best, what has been the highlight of your career? Oh,
1: my goodness. So. That's a that's a great question. I would say. Well, one of the biggest things that I worked on by myself, not entirely by myself, but I largely was the driver of it, was a focus issue we had at the end of 2019 on deep learning in microscopy. That, and for that I, I commissioned
0: Is that this or different?
1: Oh, it's a different one. Oh. But that's I love that cover. But uh, we also did have custom art for the cover of that issue as well. But um, so it was sort of this, as you probably know, people are starting to use machine learning, deep learning for image reconstruction, image augmentation, above, beyond image analysis tasks like segmentation, phenotyping, you know, but really into image formation in the way we're generating images. And um, I think both of these things are really exciting. And as an editor, it's been cool to kind of see it go from zero papers just tons it was like um like sort of like a heavy side function just boop, boop, and then you know it's it's sort of remained high so um because of all the interest and because it's just so cool i put together this i mean the team you know i was kind of the driver but it's a team effort we put together this focus issue on deep learning and microscopy and i was just so happy with how that turned out we got a lot of positive feedback just some fantastic papers in that issue and i think it's going to be a resource for people that age well. It not only puts a timestamp on what was the cutting edge when it was published, but also is forward-looking enough to age well. So I'm 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 pretty proud of that. I would say that's a high water mark for me.
0: So you see, I guess artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. You see that as very much where the future's going, where the biggest changes will be, or do you see other technology shifts that where the biggest changes will be made or biggest impacts in the coming ten years?
1: That's a great question. So, you know, from from this, I will I will say, you know, the consensus I get when I talk to microscopists is that, you know, they're kind of a little bit pessimistic about optics. They, like like they, they really feel, oh, we've pushed it very far. We've done a lot in terms of what we can do for microscopes. But then, you know, on one hand they'll say that, and the next day I'll get a paper that just surprises me in in, in terms of Ingenuity and using existing parts to do cool new things. And so I think there is certainly, sort of, just in terms of building new microscopes, better microscopes, um, lots of space for innovation still. In terms of biological imaging, you know, if you're coming at it from an optics perspective, um, maybe not so much, I don't know, but from a biology perspective, I think there's tons of stuff to do there. I think deep learning. I think it's going to be integrated seamlessly into a lot of aspects of microscopy in the future. I think the challenge it needs to meet head on right now is this issue of artifacts, hallucinations, things like that. Can biologists trust the data that they're getting? Is it quantitative? Is it meaningful? If not, then all of it's worthless, right? I mean, we're not just trying to get beautiful images of things. We're trying to figure out how life works. And if the methods fail to deliver, then they, then that's that's just it. And I think a lot of groups are working on these exact questions. They're trying to figure out, you know, like the black box nature of what these um, ANNs are doing. You know, they're really trying to do more rigorous assessments of mapping errors, mapping confidence. Um, and I think there's good work to be done there. But I think again, these, this suite of methods needs to get trust from biologists for, for it to be implemented. You know, I do, I do get a little nervous. I see ads like on Twitter, this is where I see microscopy ads, um, you know, where they, it's, just you know, the ad will just be AI integrated into your microscope, and it'll just be two side by side images. And there's just no information. What was the training data set? What's your neural network? You know, like, what is happening? And sometimes the images look bad. You know how a, a deconvolution gone wrong will look just yeah. sort of like, like like a skeleton version of the image you wanted um you know the data will look like that and i'm saying oh no i you know i don't want biologists to just consume this as if it's ready for prime time i really want there to be some rigorous backing up of these methods now is the time people are doing the hard work i think and that so so for me i'm excited about these approaches because i get to see the hard work people are doing um and i do think 10 years from now, it will be integrated into a lot of aspects of image acquisition, image analysis, um, probably every aspect, you know, how your how your microscope finds its sample, how it focuses on its sample wow. on the sample, how it finds the cells it wants to image. Um, and then from there, how it optimizes SNR of those images, image quality. From there, how it segments the images, phenotypes the images. I think it, I, I think, I do think it's the future, but I think um, a lot of Groundwork needs to be done now before it just gets taken up sort of wholesale. I,
0: I, yeah, I, it, I I don't know if it is. Uh, I, I don't know many people who are buying off the shelf products for this and just blindly using it. I, I, Maybe that's just me because I'm very skeptical at the moment. Uh, my PhD is, is a mathematician. Uh, I'm doing just this sort of analysis and where are the problems to get good teaching sets? Uh, and then you change it to a different thing and you've got to teach it in a different direction. And actually a really a hard part here is getting computer scientists, mathematician, uh, mathematicians to understand the biology. So when they're using training sets to actually, to, you still have to look at it. You still have to sanity check it and come back. And as a biologist, I think you're intrinsically aware just through your training of what's good, what's right, what's wrong if it's right or wrong, but what's what's changing. And for someone else from the outside, they're lovely pictures, but they don't always have that fundamental grounding. And that's a lot of training to get them to that point uh, of really grasping the data. And I think, yeah, I'm not sure any of that. Maybe they can do basics with some of the off the shelf products and really basic stuff. Have to be careful. I know there's a lot of companies, all the big companies have got their auto segmentation and, self outlining and everything else but oh, there's a lot there's a lot more in that data set that needs to be analyzed that we're just ignoring at the moment and i don't i just don't think we're there yet
1: yeah i well, think that's I think that's totally fair i think it's absolutely uh it's a it's a it's a infant it's a field in its infancy i don't think it's a field that's that's ripe. um
0: yes yeah, and i think i think
1: it's good that people like you are skeptical i i really do
0: yeah I, 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 okay so i'm an optimistic skeptic. <laughs> so, so, I'm optimistic we'll get there. I'm just skeptical that we that I don't think we're there yet, really. Sure. Uh, so, I've uh, a question. Yeah, who's been your inspiration inside of work? Your biggest inspiration?
1: Um, that's a great question. You know, I mentioned Dan Ivanco. I really looked up to him when I started at the company. We never actually overlapped at Nature Methods, but he was he was the chief editor when my papers came out in Nature Methods, and he was the editor who handled my first paper. And so in graduate school, when I I worked on my first paper with him, that's when I really learned what the editorial process can do for a paper. Um, Because I'll say my Nature Methods paper from graduate school was much more changed from submission to publication than any of my other papers, which I also thought were nice. But you know, what they, What he did was, he took it from a paper that was good. And he turned it into a nature methods paper where people could read it. And they knew, because of all these experiments I had done, that the tool was going to work exactly like we said it would. It took the guesswork out of using this protein I made. And the burden of that, the burden of proof was on me. I had us, you know, we had to do a lot of work, but he really shaped that paper up into a good thing and so I that inspired me I was so I always looked up to Dan first off
0: how long did it take to turn that paper around then um
1: I would say that first nature methods paper took me the long the longest of all my of all my papers and I think it had probably a six month revision period because I went from just comparing to one or two fluorescent proteins comparing my protein to just one or two others to comparing to every other red fluorescent protein that existed and orange. And so it became sort of like a mini analysis alongside a yeah. tool paper. And, you know, from a, I remember being grumpy about it as a grad student, but, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I really see now from a user perspective, why would I bother re-cloning what I have with this new one? Like, why is it worth my time and my energy? That's the question I had to overcome with my data. Not the simpler question of, is this potentially useful? Is this novel? Sure, it's new, but is it worth going through all that effort? And, you know, I think it's just doing that work made that paper what it is. And now, you know, those proteins are licensed by Clontech, they're used around the world. You know, I sort of have my hands in a lot of people's experiments. And I think part of it is because. The reviewers and the editors at nature methods pushed us pushed us really hard to um to show us to show what we could do so sure. so i also keep that in mind when i'm as an editor i'm like um you know it's my job to turn these excellent papers into nature methods papers so that when readers come to our journal they have an expectation that is met um, and so i think it's good maybe that i've experienced it from both sides
0: what about your motivation? What gets you up in the morning? Who, what pushes you on? What drives you on? What inspires you to be successful in your job? Or who, who or what inspires you to be successful in your job? Is it an external? Is it family? Is it someone at work? Is it just purely personal?
1: <laughs> okay, this is going to sound like I've really sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, but I actually love nature methods. When I was when I was a trainee, every month when Nature Methods the, the table of contents came into my inbox, I would read it, holding my breath, and hoping that I didn't get scooped. I would read every t- every manuscript title, right? And I'm like, okay, not about fluorescent proteins, not about fluorescent proteins, not you know. Um, and then after I read it, and I could feel like a little relief, then I would go back through, and I would read it again more slowly, like, oh, I want to read this paper. I want to read this paper. Um, And I think, I don't want people to read it, read our table of contents out of fear that they're being scooped necessarily. But I want people to come to our journal with that same sort of enthusiasm. Um, So what we, what we're doing is, as editors is we're creating, every month we're creating this journal, both the magazine portion and the research portion. That people want to read, that they know that they can come to for consistently high quality cutting edge work and creating that product really drives me and I'm always thinking what, how can I serve my community, what do scientists want from us, what do they need from us, this drives me on Twitter as well, you know separate from methods, I think the job of being an editor the thought process of an editor is very opaque, so part of what I do on Twitter is try to add some transparency, beef. I give frank and honest answers to sometimes critical questions about what it is we do um why we think about things certain ways and so I, I so i guess that's my motivation i want to make the journal great um personally i love this idea of making the process more transparent um i want to improve scientific publishing there are so many ways it could be made better and i think positive changes things like preprints they're happening um you know people fundamentally rethinking whether we're doing peer review the right way. You know, at Nature, we're always doing trials to make the pump, the process better. Um, and when they, when they are, when it does make the process better, we incorporate these things when it doesn't, you know, and so I like being part of, part of all of that. And so I think I can do good work and be an important part of science, even though I'm no longer at the bench.
0: So I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask some quick quick questions in a moment but I have to ask what's your next career step then like (laughs) because it it sounds like you're in your dream job as you are at the moment but go on do you have a do you have a oh yeah but
1: you know (laughs) I you're not the first person who's asked me that recently and I wonder if it's something that start people start asking you around year five or six in one job right like what is this are you going to stay at this what do you want to do next um I actually don't know. I think right now, I don't want to say I'm coasting, but I've put a lot of work into being becoming good at this job. and I really feel in the past two two years or so, I've really been able to reap the benefits of that in terms of having a great relationship with my communities. Um, you know, people feel comfortable talking to me about their papers. um I see I'm seeing cool stuff. i'm I'm very um, intellectually satisfied. And so when I couple that to the fact that I have very young kids, I'd say at this particular moment in my life, I'm not especially ambitious career-wise. But I think when my daughter starts school proper, you know, kindergarten, that's going to be two years. I think that's when I'm really going to start thinking to, to revisit that question. So for right now, I don't know. You know, could I see myself being the next chief editor of Nature Methods? Possibly. No not that Allison's not doing a great job, Allison's fantastic. I, I love Allison, she's fantastic. Um, but you know, could I see myself in that role? Absolutely. Could I see myself as a chief editor at another journal? Possibly. I love methods. Um, so, so, so I'm not sure about that question, you know, will I, I, you know, there are lots of opportunities for people outside of editorial as well, and so I haven't explored those options yet, partially because when I'm not work, I'm like laser focused at work, and when I'm home, I'm just focused on my home. So I haven't explored those things, but I would probably do what I did when I got this job, which is just cast a wide net, see what in, see what interests me, sparks my curiosity.
0: So thinking of home, uh, this <laughs> I, I, so so I guess this is your exercise regime. <laughs>
1: so
0: this is uh, um, so this is obviously yourself, but this is with a uh, uh, what's the name of your horse?
1: Oh, she's Miss Cooper.
0: Why Miss Cooper? <laughs>
1: um, it's, a, it's a bit of a long story. Um, so when I bought her, her name was Trooper. None of us liked that name. And that, but there's, um, if you um, have kids that have watched the movie Trolls, there's a character that's like a troll horse named Cooper. So my kids really liked that name. And then because she's a girl, Miss Cooper, that's sort of the evolution of that name. But we've had her about, I'm a lifelong equestrian. I've been riding since I was as young as my kids. Um, But we've only had her for about six months.
0: Is this your first uh, personal horse?
1: Oh, no. Um, I've had horses my whole life. Um, But then when I got, I had two horses when I got pregnant with my son. One was... A horse i'd had from childhood who passed away from cancer he had a tumor in his cheek and the other horse was young and she needed um just more riding that i could do when i was pregnant and had an infant so i sold her so then i took a six year pause from owning you know five year pause from owning horses but um when we had after we had my daughter we decided we were we were good with two kids and then i told my husband i'm going to start riding horses again so then I started leasing horses, which is basically you don't buy the horse. It's like leasing a car. You don't buy the horse, but you pay yeah. to ride a certain amount. And so I have been riding for about a year when I came across the advertisement for her. And it was sort of, I rode her and it was sort of love at first sight. So we bought her.
0: And, and not just you, so your family are now, I, I presume, oh, yes. starting on this as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, my daughter says that Cooper is her horse. So they, they both ride.
0: So, so I have to ask, so, so, so my daughter-in-law-to-be uh, ha, 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 has a horse uh, and, and they get up almost as early as I get up in the morning, just so they can <laughs> go out in the darkness of the morning before it gets light to go over and, uh, you know, to, to take her out and uh, feed her, look after her, let her out uh, into the yard and stuff. So it's quite a lot of work.
1: Yes. If you have the horses on your property, it's a, a lot of work. I, I'm at a full care boarding facility. So they we have, it's a, it's a farm with probably uh, 30 horses and they have um, a fantastic barn manager who does all the feeding and cleaning of stalls, mucking. And then I just ride two or three times a week. So that takes the, the burden of the, that, the Dawn horse care off of me. Although um, I did have my, I did have a little emergency with her. She had an uh, eye injury where she, I think, she tried to itch her eye on like a stick or something. Cause, because horses are beautiful and majestic, but not always the smartest. And she got a little swelling and abrasion on her eye, so I had to check that out. So it's like being a mom. She is my third child. It's like I have to pay attention to every, you know, it's like, oh my horse has a hurt eye. I have to go out immediately. <laughs> and like, she's fine, thankfully, but. Um, it is a lot of care, you know, um, for an animal that doesn't live in our home, she takes up a lot of my mental energy and emotional <laughs> energy yeah. in a good way, I love
0: it. I should stress my daughter-in-law's horse isn't, isn't, isn't in a private yard, it, it is in stables as well, but they, they go over every morning and evening or, or her, her grandfather does as well to look after it, and yeah, they get loads of enjoyment, but oh my, I am allergic to horse hair. So this is not the best thing, because they're, they're living with us at the moment, uh, so, so we've got both of them. Yeah, when they come in, they just have to get upstairs, <laughs> lose those clothes, get some fresh clothes on, because I am so allergic to horses.
1: I've heard, to, I've heard you're not the first person I've met who's allergic to horses, and I don't... Uh, how would you have gained that allergy? <laughs> I mean, how did you learn it? How did oh, you even uh, find out that you were allergic? I knew
0: I was allergic to cats and dogs, but I remember... Actually, as an undergraduate, and someone came and sat next to me and they've just just tended their horse. Uh and I sat there and oh my goodness, I I was everything, my eyes, my throat, my chest all went really bad beyond what I get for a cat or dog. But what's going on? And then I realized it was someone who'd been with their horse. And then I think parents who go on holidays and you can get a horse and cart and you can get That was not a good place to be i think it might have been rome on one it's like uh, a you shouldn't be on any mode of transporting in rome because that's a bit crazy anyway but yeah the the, yes i was so ill it's like just get me off it oh (laughs) yeah you you quickly realize that that isn't one for me so when you're at home uh, what would you rather do read a book or watch tv oh i'm
1: definitely i'm always on my kindle reading on my i read on my phone which i think I love paper books, but reading on yeah. my phone is so convenient. I'm forever reading, reading on my phone.
0: <laughs> so you read for your work, you read at home. Oh my goodness. Fact or fiction <laughs> when you're doing it for, for, for leisure?
1: Um, You know, I, I for leisure, I do read um, fiction, but I have been trying to educate myself and improve myself. So I've been trying to read uh, more literature on equality racism how to be anti-racist so I'd say some non-fiction has certainly populated my my bookshelf the past and year
0: fiction what type of fiction
1: um I would say usually the things that are like shortlisted for the booker man booker prize you know I tried I read um I don't know I, I feel like I've been reading a lot of American women writers writing fictional stories about I don't know uh, not like beach reading but definitely human stories, family stories, things like that. Okay, and <laughs> would you? I don't speak... read I don't read science literature, and I don't read science nonfiction. I do read some sci-fi, but not not lately, actually. Uh
0: are you a morning bird night owl or burn it at both ends
1: definitely a morning person absolutely I wake up um, every morning to exercise before my kids are up I run three or four days a week and then on my off days I do like sort of speed walking yep. all on my treadmill <laughs> um so
0: Tell that's you my don't you don't run on the treadmill do you I
1: I, I do I I, <laughs> I know people call it the treadmill, but um for me I do I do short runs I typically run under four miles in one go so um to me the treadmill is not bad I just turn on my music and I just get it done with
0: and, and um, you go not just flat you get the inclines going as well
1: yeah um my treadmill has like a hill program yeah and you can adjust the incline um as at your leisure although let's be honest I'm sometimes lazy and I'll just, <laughs> I'll just run just flat
0: when you're feeling flat in the morning
1: yeah <laughs> but definitely a morning person by the evening I have to sort of peel myself off the couch and you know up to bed
0: <laughs> so, so at that point you're getting towards an evening though would you rather uh, get a takeaway or cook in normal times
1: in normal times yeah. oh that's a great question you know I'm not really a foodie, but I've been spoiled in my travels. Like I've been to, because for work, I've been to Japan, Paris, London. I've been all around the world. And so when it comes to that sort of eating, I'm absolutely, I want to eat at nice restaurants. Um, but at home, I'd say we, t- we probably cook six nights a week at home, you know, just, just simple food, like a protein and a fresh vegetable. Yep. And then we'll, I think our little indulgence lately has been Thai food. But we've been ordering more takeout lately to support local businesses because we want them to exist once the pandemic is over yep. and the only way we can do that is um, by ordering from them. And
0: what's your favorite food type if you could, if you could only, if you have what is the if you if you your husband wanted to take you out for an anniversary, what would be the food type that that most gets you excited?
1: Oh, definitely Korean food. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm spoiled because my grandma and my mom cook excellent Korean food. And, you know, we are they're part of my bubble, so we eat together quite a bit. Um, one of my favorite foods is called Dokboki, and, and we're having it this Sunday. So I'm, I'm spoiled with my access to Korean food, but it's easily my favorite. I grew up eating it. That's what I crave.
0: <laughs> and, okay, really quick five answers. Coffee or tea? Oh,
1: oh I, both, both of those. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Coffee. Okay. Uh, if I had to pick one coffee, I would. I would pick coffee.
0: Wine, beer, water.
1: You know what? I'm a teetotaler. I I don't drink since my pregnancy. So water.
0: So water on that one. So do you do decaf coffees?
1: Yes, I do decaf coffee as well. I'm so boring. I know, I, <laughs> thanks, I, I'm for, big... thanks for telling everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said nothing. You said it. It wasn't me. <laughs>
0: Actually, I'm, I'm a big decaf man. So I I. I, I okay. Have to Twice a week, that's it, uh, especially for exercise, because exercise on the caffeine is awesome. It just is just, <laughs> the only drug I'm allowed to take. Uh, yeah, I don't talk about the ones I'm not allowed to take. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we, we, we are actually, I think we've run over an hour. this has gone so fast. Uh, I've I, oh, got a really quick answer. So I really want to ask you what do you think has been the greatest invention uh, in microscopy? Which has been the most profound technology?
1: You mean ever?
0: Yeah. Um, it's really difficult, isn't it?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm going back to my earlier answer. I think so much biology has been learned on a what we would call a conventional wide field, you know, epifluorescence microscope. So I think that design, you know. It, um, you know, you get diffraction limited resolution, yeah. and that is good for a lot of science. So I'm going to go with right that. It would
0: have been possible without the epifluorescence microscope. It's that fundamental change, which I think was Baz Plume, I think, uh, that, that did the, the fundamentals. And, and he never got a Nobel Prize. Uh, and actually, if you think about those basics, I don't think a Nobel Prize was ever given for confocal microscopy, which again, no, it
1: wasn't.
0: Yeah. Probably had a bigger impact than almost anything else to, to date. Uh, I guess maybe because they were not so impacting until fluorescent proteins so maybe it's the probe that was the biggest impact that that enabled that technology to to be realized so I'm giving a longer answer sorry Uh, (laughs) I'm going to finish on this do you have this is a really difficult question a best science joke
1: okay this is not the best but it is a science joke so I was reading a book on helium. I couldn't put it down. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about my delivery. My stand-up comedy is very rusty. (laughs) (laughs) It was
0: fine. I expected your voice to go high pitch, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would have been good, okay. Redo, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Rita, it's been really lovely to chat, to to meet you and actually chat with you. I actually, I didn't get through half of the different things I actually wanted to get through, but it's been brilliant to get a different career perspective. Uh, and I hope everyone who's been listening has really enjoyed getting an insight to what it feels like to be in the editor's position. Uh, a lot of people are on the other side. And just the complexities involved. If you're not a, a hardcore scientist, the complexities of even getting your work published and the difficulties that that can involve from both sides. So I hope everyone's got a good appreciation of that. And thank you for watching or thank you for listening, whichever format you've chosen. If you've listened, go and watch it, because the pictures are brilliant. Uh, (laughs) And don't forget to subscribe to the channels as well. Rita, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so flattered that you chose me. I've had a great time.
0: That's been really brilliant. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.